we're studying church history, and as we're going through church history, we've, we've moved through all the different centuries, and, and we're in the modern age, and we're talking about the greatest generation, that, that, that group that came through the, the World War II and is, is trying to make sense of the world around them. And as we talked about the last time, this is, a, a, again, another age of discovery and division. A lot of people finding things and saying, oh, this changes everything. And a lot of people deciding that the best way that they can figure out how to deal with complicated issues is to separate themselves from the complicated issues. Because that always works, but, right? It always works. If you're having a problem, if you just separate yourself from the, the core of the problem, you will no longer have that problem. That's, surely that's the way it works. All right, last time we talked about 1945, the Nakamadi Codices were discovered. You were here, remember that. If not, it's just, just remember that there are a bunch of, of Gnostic books that were found uh, in, in jars in a cave along the Nile in Egypt. Well, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. So before I get any further than that, what's a Dead Sea and what's a Scrolls? Because I say that, and... And people nod, and, and I probably ought to go back so we're all on the same page. The Dead Sea is an extremely salty lake, uh, right there in, in, in Palestine, <coughs> right? Not that far, really, from Jerusalem. But it's a lake that's so salty that you very few plants or animals can survive in the lake or even around the lake. I mean, there's, there's some. It, it's surprising the ecosystem that they got, but it's amazingly salty, which makes it incredibly easy to float. Crazy easy to float in this thing. Anyway, 1947, in the cliffs near Qumran, uh, right on the shores of, of the Dead Sea, there are all these monastic caves that had been carved into the rock there, and a Bedouin fell into one of them, which people apparently do from time to time, because it's, it's very acidic soil, they, they crumble through. Anyway, so he fell into this cave where they found several large jars, because that's apparently a thing. They didn't have Tupperware, so if you want to make sure that you're protecting something, where do you put it? Make an earthenware jar, you seal the top, that's about as well as you can keep it. So they found several scrolls written in Hebrew, and unlike books, scrolls, I know you know this, but just so that I can cover it, scrolls are long, continuous pieces of papyrus or what have you, curled around rolling pins. And so you, that's, that's what traditionally things were, were put on for the codices. Anyway, tremendous amount of significance. Have you heard, how many people have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Now I'm going to cheat and do this. How many of you know why you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, good. It's a smaller number of hands, but that's good. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's important, but we don't always necessarily know why it's important. First off, the importance is it contains a number of texts, including, amongst other things, pretty much all the books of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. But you got almost everything else. Prior to the discovery of, the, of the, these Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest copies, the earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament that we had were from the 10th century AD, from like 900 years after Jesus died. That doesn't mean that that's when they were written. It just means that that's when these were published, these were printed, these were handwritten. That's a lot older than now, but that's 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 still 900 years after Jesus. The Dead Sea Scrolls were dated to the second century BC, 200 years before Christ. So that's kind of an important find where you say suddenly 
we have over a thousand years older sitting right in front of us. These are going to be, by definition, closer to what Jesus read in the synagogues. You know, oh, wow, that's really going to help us to understand stuff. How much had the Bible been mangled over 1,100 years? Because surely, when we talk about copying and recopying and recopying, you're going to have a lot of changes, right? Do you ever photocopy a photocopy of a photocopy? It gets mangled. This is 1,100 years, over 1,000 years. You're going to see a lot of mangling. And this will help us to understand how the Bible changes. So, they looked at it, and they're like, actually, it's amazingly close to what they had 900 years after Jesus. In 1,100 years, it hadn't changed much. They've been extremely careful with how they were transcribing, which if you actually look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're gorgeous. I mean, it's like, almost like it, it, it maybe doesn't transfer well here, but when you look at it, you go, man, it's almost machine-made. It's almost like it was printed on a printer. They were so careful on how they did this. The caves themselves had probably been used by the, the, uh, the Essenes. We talked about the Essenes in class, but I don't know if everybody remembers who this group was. These are the guys who consider themselves more holy than everybody. In fact, that's probably what the word Essene is talking about. We're the actually holy ones. And so they retreated away from the Sadducees. They retreated away from the Pharisees to create their own group of what essentially were monks. And they went and lived in caves. They, they said, you have to be... Uh, pure, you have to avoid everything, you have to uh, be chaste, etc. And they also were famous for kind of tweaking their interpretations of the Torah. They had their own unique take on the Torah, which is telling because that's pretty much the only place where the inconsistencies are between the Dead Sea Scroll versions of the Old Testament and the 900 years after Jesus version of the Old Testament were in the Torah. Strangely, and apparently fortuitously, the Essenes version of the Torah matched what the Essenes tended to interpret the Torah to mean. They had kind of tweaked it their way. This is their version of it. So, they become kind of a litmus test. And go back to this. When I say most of the texts were all but identical, 1,100 years apart, what do you tend to think? This is a nice scholastic litmus test. Because some scholars say, oh, so when you say most of the texts were all but identical, you're, you're admitting some texts weren't identical, which just goes to show that you can't trust the Bible. Isn't that one interpretation of that phrase? Most of the texts are almost completely identical. Therefore, some aren't. Therefore, we can't trust the Bible. That's one set of scholarship. Or you could say, that's amazing! 1,100 years, the changes were like almost insignificant, and the only changes really were in something that we already know that the people there were tending to tweak that way. Wow! So, when you think of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you, you, I want you to understand why some scholars sit there and go, clearly, shows that you can't trust the Bible. Other scholars go, clearly, shows that you can totally trust the Bible. From my perspective, as I look at it, when you've got 1,100 years difference and there's almost no change, and the only changes were things you already knew that they had an axe to grind in there, I, I, I go back to saying, these Jewish scribes, they counted every letter, they counted every book. They would come at the beginning and the end of a book, and they would count the letters and the words back and meet in the middle, and if they didn't meet on exactly the same letter every time in the exact center of a given word, they'd trash it and start all over again. 
until they did. They made sure as much as possible they would be exactly the same over and over and over again. Which is why it's so interesting, ironically, in the book of Esther. The only book that never says anything about God at all. That the only place in scripture where you get the, the tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, the name of God, in words that are in a row, because they tended to say, I don't want to say, you have white hair. You know, it, 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 because they, they're like, if you put those words in a row, that almost sounds like you're using the name of God in vain. Like there's only one time in the entirety of all scripture where a Y word followed by an H word followed by a W word followed by an H word is in the Old Testament. Which is actually exactly smacked out in the middle of Esther. I love looking at how these guys did this. They did it so that you sit there and go, you can't read and you certainly can't copy the book of Esther without reminding yourself God is at the dead center of it. Anyway, my point is, in all of this, that thanks to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can pretty much have every confidence that what you're reading in the Old Testament, in your Bibles, is pretty close to, if not pretty much exactly, for all intents and purposes, the same thing that Jesus is reading in the synagogues in his day. Not because you go, oh, now we got the real one, but you go, apparently we have the real one. You know, that's pretty much the way that works. So, really an important find. Worth knowing about. Same year, India was partitioned between the Muslims and the Hindus. I don't know how much you know about Indian history, but there was just a lot of religious and racial tension in India, even under the British rule, because the, the Hindus and the Muslims constantly clashing, constantly fighting, constantly hating each other. And they were becoming more and more and more violent in their clashes. They're killing each other at an alarming rate, especially up here in the region of Punjab where, um, well, I mean, as I said, you're fighting relatively recently, prior to 1947, they claim the lives of like one to two million people in violent riots between the Muslims and the Hindus. And the British are like, we gotta do something about this. So, British came up with a really clever idea. Why don't we give the Muslims their own country? And so they divided a chunk of India off and called it Pakistan. So if anybody's ever sat there and said, oh, I wonder when that started. Well, this is when that started. So, so there's India and Pakistan. That makes sense. Because again, if you have a problem, if you're struggling, the best thing that you can do is simply remove yourself from the, from the chafing point. And then all the problems go away, right? I have a serious problem with this. Oh, well, then I remove that, and I no longer have a serious problem. You go, well, why did I start having a serious problem with that? It doesn't matter. It's not there anymore. Yeah, it kind of does matter, because I'm still here. I'm still the same person that had that same problem. Making India expressly Hindu. This is Muslim India-ish. This is Hindu India. There you go. Ten million people displaced, forcibly migrated to their new home. For a million died in the process. <coughs> but it solves other problems, because you don't have Muslims and Hindus right next to each other, right? Because it's not like Pakistan sitting right next to India. All the problems go away. Four major wars later, the two nations are still bitter enemies. I don't know, I don't know how much you watch the news. The last month, India unveiled its plans to deploy 460 tanks along the border with Pakistan with intent to invade. Anybody hear any of that? Pakistan's reply, do that and we will nuke India. 
Because Pakistan has nuclear weapons? Really? No, of course you didn't. You know why? Because we tweet. We have a president that tweets. We've been sitting here talking about Trumpness. Oh, who cares if a bunch of Indians nuke each other? There's a whole rest of the world out there doing things over the last month, beyond just the stuff that we myopically get so upset about. Yeah, how wise is it, by the way, for Pakistan saying, we will nuke our next-door neighbor? Because they're talking about nuking Delhi. That would I was telling Wendy, it would be roughly akin to Chicago going, yeah, we will nuke Indianapolis. That'll show them. What are you thinking, you crazy people? I think this is worth understanding. That if Pakistan nukes India tomorrow, I'd kind of like you guys to understand why. This is why. Because if you say, I will just remove the chafing point, it does not remove the chafe. I will just say, I will no longer sit next to you. Yeah, but the hatred is still there, and the hatred was the problem in the first place. Technically, Pakistan is broken into two groups, though. There's Pakistan, and then there was East Pakistan over here, because there were a bunch of Muslims on that side, too. And the British are smart. Yeah, we'll do that. Over time, the people of East Pakistan said, the people of West Pakistan are bonkers, and we really would rather not be Pakistan. So um, can we get our own independence? Can we have our own country? <laughs> And Pakistan said, no! And they sent troops over and slaughtered two to three million of the East Pakistanis because they said, you should want to be Pakistani. <coughs> I don't know about you, but that doesn't tend to make me want to be. I mean, they sit there and go, y'all crazy over there. They go, well, we'll kill two to three million of you. You're not crazy over there? No, you're still crazy over there. On the plus side, on the plus side, they did that at a time when we had rock stars. And that's important, because rock stars make history. Generated global attention. They have a huge benefit concert. Got Eric Clapton and Bob Dylan and George Harrison all had this big concert about it, saying, we all need to be aware of what's going on over there with the Bengal people. We can't end up because everybody went, who did what now with the what kind of people? Because this is before Google, and so nobody knew where Pakistan or India were. So there's a big concert, which resulted in the birth of a new nation called Bangladesh, which is why it was the concert for Bangladesh, which is this famous big thing that happened in the 60s. Anyway, point is that, that because it caught um, this international attention, all of a sudden everybody paid attention, all of a sudden Bangladesh had its independence. What can we learn about any, from any of that today? Anything there have anything to do with anything we're sitting at today? Knock yourselves out. You just have a concert. It'll all be okay. <laughs> Actually, that's exactly the way people tend to think now. What else? There's a historical precedent for the two-state solution. There is an historical precedent for the two-state solution. By the way, it didn't seem to work it super, well. super well. Yeah. It's hard enough to sit there and say, let's make a regional difference in a, in a civil war. It's really kind of impossible to make everything go away if you have a philosophical or religious rationale for a civil war. Yeah. How did Pakistan get their troops over to East Pakistan without India being upset about it? They didn't. India was <laughs> upset about it. But that's an excellent argument. You said that India's like, what? You know, that's exactly what happened. 
So, which is part of why the end Pakistan don't tend to like each other very much. Amazingly, hate doesn't go away, even if you have a concert. Hate doesn't go away, even if you split it off. Hate doesn't go away, unless you change the people. Go, uh, go figure. Oh well. How awful is it? Let's ask this way: to react to those with whom we disagree with emotive explosions instead of with reason and respect. How helpful is that? Yes, I know. We had a whole conversation about that on Friday at, at Bible study. But amazingly, it doesn't make hate go away. And yet we do it. I don't know. Have you ever gotten in an argument with somebody and they get explosively angry, and instead of being reasonable, you get explosively angry back? Did that, did that help? Probably didn't help. I do it all the time. Because, you know what? I'm stupid. All right. 1947, same year that Fuller Theological Seminary was founded. Founded by Reverend Charles Fuller host of the popular old-fashioned Revival Hour radio show. In fact, he was the guy that brought the term personal savior into the American vernacular because he's talking about how you need to have a personal relationship, an individual relationship with God. Um, this needs to be genuine and, and, and not just intellectual, not just theological. But, like a lot of evangelicals of his day, and remember we talked about how evangelicals are different than fundamentalists, he said, you know, I'm worried... Because we've got all these theological liberals who are taking over more and more universities and, and, and seminaries saying it is scholarly to doubt the Bible. It is scholarly to, um, um, to purposely get rid of everything that has come before. And yet, I also worry about these separate, separatist fundamentalists who say it is bad to ever do anything new. It is bad to think new thoughts. Like, no, no, no. The fundamentalists are becoming less and less studious. The liberals are becoming less and less Christian. What we really need is a modern university that is as solid as it can be scholastically, and yet committed to being biblically conservative. We need to create something like that. And one of the early supporters of Fuller was a guy named uh, Carl F.H. Henry, up-and-coming evangelical thinker. 1946-47, he wrote two books, the Remaking of the, of the Modern Mind and the Uneasy Conscience of, of Modern Fundamentalism. And both of these talked about something that the Dutch uh, Americans would call a world and life view. An idea that says, you know, if you, if you actually change the way you think, it should change the way you live. How you understand things should affect what you do on a daily basis. And he says, what we really should do is live this transformed personal relationship with Christ out. If all you do is understand God correctly and do nothing with it, you haven't understood God correctly. If all you do is run around helping people, but you don't tether it to scripture, then you're just trying to be a nice person instead of a transformed person. So what you need to do is, is to really see this as living out the gospel. You should consciously ground your social action on the solid foundation of the word of God. And if your foundation is on the word of God, it should naturally lead itself out into social action. Does that make sense? Because a lot of people are like, yeah, I'm Christians. I'm a Christian, therefore we should go help people. And I don't want to be judgmental. I just pretty much want to hug everybody and do this. And he's like, well, okay, your impetus was maybe Christian-ish, but you have abandoned the Bible in the process. And you people over here are sitting in a church basement reading your Bibles and doing nothing about it. You've abandoned the Bible. You just don't think about it that way. So the idea was, and Fuller thought, 
this would give us not only just a good foundation for Fuller, this, these kinds of books, this kind of thinking, this will give us the foundation that we want, but it will also give us a new version of Christianity that isn't really a new version of Christianity. Just going back and saying, wait, maybe we should actually live this stuff. It's actually very Anabaptist when you think about it. But the idea is saying, let's go back to what the Bible is saying and do that. Let's, let's just do that. We're not going to be rigidly fundamentalist. We're not going to be overly flexible liberals. This is what we're trying to do with evangelicalism. 1956, Henry became, and his understanding of this became so normative amongst evangelicals, that Billy Graham said, would you do me a favor? Start a magazine. Get something out there. There's evangelicals. Just, we don't have our own literature out there. We don't have, there's millions of us out there that really don't understand our own Bibles at all. Because we've just sat there and listened to other people tell us, could you help us figure out how to do this? So he founded he founded a specific magazine. Anybody know what it's called? Christianity Today, which hopefully you're familiar with. But when you combine its print and digital output today, it reaches 2.5 million people every month all around the world. With this idea of saying, instead of beating you over the head of the doctrine, how about I come back to saying, live this out. Read your Bibles. Live this out. Tries very hard not to be partisan in things. Very hard not to be denominational in things. Very hard to say, live out a personal relationship with God. And how does that look? He's also a longtime faculty member at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, to which everybody should say, woot, woot. Because that's, that's where we went, which makes it good. Um, in 19... Do you not trust Paul's judgment? Do not take that personally. I trust Paul's judgment. Anyway, in 1998... Trinity established the Carl F. H. Henry Center for Theological Understanding. And the, the rationale here tells you a lot about how he was thinking. The understanding was to, quote, provide unique opportunities for ministers, professionals, and academics in various fields to work collaboratively with seminary faculty engaged in biblical and theological reflection for the promotion of gospel-centered thinking and living. That's the whole idea. Can we, can we interact? Scholastically, can we interact with the world? Can we live out the stuff that we believe? Ironically, Fuller doesn't do that anymore that much. Fuller has gone back and forth and back and forth, depending on the faculty, depending on the of the administrations, as to whether or not it wants to be conservative. At any given moment, Fuller has been biblically conservative, just a bastion of evangelicalism. And at any given point, Fuller has been remarkably liberal. They keep going back and forth. Depending on who's there, they express uh, love for evangelicalism or they embrace higher criticism. They're uh, a leader in LGBTQ equality within the church, etc. As its website affirms, we're not afraid to ask hard questions, push boundaries, explore new ideas. With a seminary community that comes from hundreds of traditions and backgrounds, we listen, wrestle, dialogue, and come away stronger. Not because we've come to conclusions, but because we've asked the questions. Whether you think that's exciting to hear or not exciting to hear, probably dependent on where you're coming out of theologically. If you're a fundamentalist, that paragraph is terrifying, isn't it? What? New ideas? You're crazy people. If you're a liberal, you're like, what? Conclusions? Those are bad. Questions are awesome. This is my place. 
If you're an evangelical, you should scratch your head and go, uh, can we, can we, uh, could you unpack that for me a little bit? How did I already go on with that? That's become the seminary choice for a lot of mainline denominations to seek out a consistently good scholarship from a consistently liberal standpoint. When I say mainline, what is a mainline denomination? Okay. Um, mainline denominations, that's a, that's a term that usually is referring to uh, denominations that have been around for an extended period of time where the, ecclesi the ecclesiastical structures themselves have become the point. Um, sometimes, and sometimes they can be extremely healthy, extremely solid, and that's great. Sometimes they can be so focused on, well, this is the way we've done it for 500 years, that this particular congregation or even this particular offshoot denomination, it kind of gets empty, and, it, and, it, and it's become more about liberality and more about I want you to feel good going here. Than, than, so, I mean, like some Presbyterian denominations, Lutheran denominations, some Methodist denominations, where you sit there and you go, oh, yeah, we've been doing it this way forever. And you go, how many people sitting in your, your church? Twelve. You know, and, um, but not just a number of people, but it's like you, you're, you, the passion is gone, the heart is gone behind what you're doing. So there's a, when you talk about a mainline denomination, you're, you tend to be talking about that group's risk when you're talking about Evangelicals, you tend to be pulling from a different crop of Christians, etc. Oh. 1947, same year that Oral Roberts reached a turning point in his ministry. Anybody ever hear of Oral Roberts? Okay. Some more people. More people than knew the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Uh, up until then, he'd been this Pentecostal preacher in, in small churches in Oklahoma. 1947, he opened up his Bible and read 3 John 1 2. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. Well, that's great. God wants us to prosper. More than anything else, God wants us to prosper. So with that promise of prosperity firmly in mind, he goes out, he immediately buys himself a Buick that day. It's like, God wants me. <laughs> if you want to prosper, buy a Buick. So he goes out and buys a Buick. Immediately has a vision that God himself came and told him to start a major ministry of healing and prosperity, which, which he did. He preached from Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus promised, to tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus, or do you not believe Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Okay. So, Robert says, if you just give God even the smallest seed of faith, this, this good seed faith. If you give a, even a little bit of money to Robert's ministry, or if you claim the promises of God for yourself, or you step out in faith to believe that God wants you to prosper, then God has already promised that nothing that you want for your life will be impossible for you to attain. Or do you not believe Jesus? Option C. There is no option C, is there? Yeah. There's always an option C. So the ministry grows because the American people go, I like that. I want me a Buick. Begins as popular radio show in 47, produced and starred in a movie in 1953. Began to broadcast his revivals on television in 1954. By the way, television, that's how I knew Oral Roberts was growing up and seeing him on TV. 1963, he founded Oral Roberts University because God gave him a vision to do this. That he gave God gave, he had a vision in 1977 of a 900-foot Jesus who told him to build the City of Faith Medical and Research Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Because 
that's what God wanted. You know, he wanted that to thrive. Nineteen eighty-six, the center was losing over ten million dollars a year, and by nineteen eighty-seven, it was empty. It's about to go under. So what happens? Did anybody remember? He had another vision of a nine hundred foot Jesus. Nine hundred foot Jesus now told him that he had to raise eight million dollars by March, or God would call him home. I remember this. I remember hearing about this and thinking, and that would be bad. Why? <laughs> And I don't mean that I'm looking forward to dying, but I'm not scared of being dead, actually. Dying doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but being dead sounds pretty cool, actually, as a Christian. So he's like, God's going to kill me if I don't get $8 million. So his followers made sure he raised $9. million by March, because they wanted to save his life, which is why you should give to your church, right? No. By 1989, the center was $25 million in debt and finally had to close for good. Throughout all of this, though, luckily, Roberts didn't have to change his lifestyle because you'd hate to do that. So he had his multiple homes, he had his handmade Italian silk suits, had his expensive jewelry. According to the UK's Daily Telegraph, he instructed his aides to airbrush the diamond rings he habitually wore out of his publicity photographs so that people didn't know, you know, as he's begging them for money, people don't go, so that ring over there. More than I make in three years. What can we learn from that today? Mm -hmm. Oh! Oh! <laughs> I did not name names. And we will not say that that was Eric. <laughs> Interpret the Bible properly. And maybe use some wisdom when you're listening to people who are helping you to interpret the Bible. Please, be Bereans. When you hear me preach, please go, oh, I think that's what that just said. Please don't just take a, a verse out of context and go run and make a theology out of it. Look at people's fruit. And Jesus is really 900 feet tall. Maybe, maybe in Revelation. Anyway, 1948, the World Council of Churches was founded. I don't know if you've heard of these guys, but... If you remember, the ecumenical movement, which was trying to draw all sorts of people together from all sorts of walks of life, its name came from the Greek phrase, oikumene gay, the, the, the inhabited world, the, the, the way the Romans would say, the whole known world, whole civilized world. It kicked it into gear in 1910 with the World Missionary Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland. Remember when we talked about that? Okay. And then in 1920, Patriarch Germanos V issued an encyclical, a letter to all churches, calling everyone all around the known world to give up their needless divisions and be one family. You know, that's, that's really quite sweet. Of course, he wasn't the patriarch anymore by the time he wrote the letter. He resigned because nobody liked him, which is problematical. And he annoyed more churches than he drew in because he completely ignored the reasons they broke off in the first place. He's like, oh, let's not argue about calendars or who gets to participate in which sacraments or any of that kind of stuff. Let's just do things the Greek Orthodox way and I'll be happy. Which all the fundamentalists say, no. You know, all, 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 the, all the Roman Catholics say, no. So. But at least the idea is, uh, let's try to get along. Can't we all just get along? But he suggested, as part of the letter, that they create a league of churches, kind of like Kind of like the political entities that created a league of nations. 
we can all come together and talk with one another. World War II kind of made a hiccup for that, strangely enough, right? A little, little hard to come together when you're shooting at one another. Literally. Anyway, so 48. Delegates of 147 churches meet in Amsterdam, and they're like, we're going we're gonna to do this. Germanos had a great idea. It's been 28 years. We ought to get around to doing it. Let's, let's do that. The basic practice, and we've talked about this sort of thing before, but the basic practice of the World Council of Churches was to say, let's not focus on doctrine. Let's focus on being Christian. And by the way, you can define that however you want to define that. But let's just be Christian with one another. Let's show love. Let's show kindness. Let's show peace. Let's take care of the poor. All the stuff that Jesus really wanted us to do. Let's go build bridges in Paraguay. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? Going and building bridges in Paraguay? Taking care of the poor? Being nice? Being kind? Is there any problem with any of that? Again, wait, wait, wait. Before you answer, how you answer, refer back to how you responded to that fuller paragraph. You know, it's like, you're coming at it from a fundamental standpoint, you're coming at it from a liberal standpoint, you're coming at it from an evangelical standpoint. Go ahead and answer. If that's all you do, you're not any different than the philanthropist of the world, and you're not sharing the gospel of Christ like we are supposed to be You are living out elements of it, but you are not really living out the full gospel of Christ. You are not, you're not doing... If you say, oh, let's just deal with the physical, let's ignore the, the spiritual stuff, let's ignore the doctrinal stuff altogether, well, my evangelical side says, well, you're missing something fairly crucial there. Of course, there are going to be large chunks of people who go, yeah, I'd rather sit in a church basement and get my doctrine right than go and help the poor. Well, then you're not getting your doctrine right. So it, it, it's good, but once you start saying, oh, let's not argue about who killed whom, you've missed the point of the discussion. You, you, you're starting to have some problems. As such, you can understand why this is pretty much just the mainline denominations. The Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists all sat there and said, well, that sounds good. Whereas the Evangelicals and the Fundamentalists, whose whole reason for existing is to say, let's get back to Scripture, let's make sure that we're nailed down to doctrine, sat there and said, you guys make me very uncomfortable. This is, I don't think this is the way to do it. And the Catholic Church also declined membership. The Catholic Church sat there and said, that would suggest that something other than Rome is the head of the church. Nothing other than Rome is the head of the church. That's the big argument. You're diluting the fact that we convene things. We do. I'm not going to Amsterdam so that we can all sit around. And, it sounds very Lutheranish to me. If, you know, we all can sit around and figure out what to do. We, 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 a couple hundred years ago, we're still burning people at stake for that. Nonetheless. Uh, the, uh, the World Council of Churches now represents 590 million Christians worldwide. What's interesting is the more conservative Protestants start drifting toward the World Evangelical Alliance, which already existed. If you remember back in 1846, there were a whole bunch of British missionaries that had spent time around the world. They all came together going, I don't care whether we're Baptists or whether we're Methodists or whatever. Can we all just come together and talk about what we've learned in being missionaries? And let's do Bible studies together. Let's try to nail ourselves down to Scripture and learn from one another rather than sit there in our own little enclaves. Well, after the World Council of Churches, there were a bunch of evangelical churches from all around the world that said, hey, you guys got a good thing going. That, that's what we think the World Council of Churches should look more like. Which is why today the World Evangelical Alliance has a constituency of 600 million people of their own. So two comparable kinds of agencies doing 
somewhat similar things, but with very very dissimilar foundations and stuff. They don't hate each other anymore. Coming out different. By the way, same year that the modern nation of Israel was founded. So, everybody says, "Yay!" Okay. I thought they were for the 1947 boundaries. Am I making that year up? No. Let's talk about this. There is no Israel from 135 to 1948, right? There is no nation there. Do you remember there was this, 132, there was an Israeli rebellion led by a Messiah named Bar Kokhba. They go, "Mm, he wasn't the Messiah, but he said he was, and a lot of other people said he was. And it was messy, so messy that Hadrian said, that's it, I'm done. This, this is the same Adrian that said, I'm chopping Scotland off the world. Going to build a wall and go everything north of there. It's crazy world. He's like, okay, and on the other end of the empire, I'm just going to take the nation off the game board. There is no Israel anymore. We're done. Study of the Torah is now officially prohibited. We're going to burn one in the middle of the temple. Jewish scholars are all executed. There is no Judaism anymore. It's over. You know how Antiochus, you know, tried to be a pain in the tushy for you guys, and he, he tried to get rid of things in the temple, and he put up a statue of himself. That, no, I'm just going to kill everybody that knows anything about this. I'm destroying you guys in a way that Antiochus never did finally get around to. Jews, you're forbidden to even enter Jerusalem. It's off limits for you. The end of Jerusalem will kill you. This is over. The region is going to be officially broken up into Roman provinces, Syria, and Palestine, named after the Philistines. I'm giving this to your mortal enemies. There is no Israel anymore. Every time you hear the word Palestine, you hear Philistines now own Israel. Got it? It's over. There is no Israel. There will never be Israel. Until, ironically, Adolf Hitler said, I'm taking the race out entirely. I'm killing every Jew. And by doing that, helped create a Jewish state. The irony. During the Holocaust, thousands of Jews fled from Europe to British and then later French-controlled Palestine. Right? Because they, where are they going to go? Is it going to go from Germany to France where it's safe? How much of Europe is under fascist control at the moment? By the way, that's the black parts. There's no place to go. They, they did try to go to England and to America, but England and America had limited slash closed off immigration completely at that time. You, you do understand that for I don't know, several decades in, in the 20th century, America had completely closed immigration, right? No, it's unprecedented, isn't it? No, I mean, for most of the 20th century, no immigration was allowed into the United States. But that's before most of us were necessarily alive, and so nobody remembers that because Nobody was tweeting it. Since the end of World War I, when the Ottomans had, uh, had to turn over Palestine as part of their, we're sorry we did World War I, um, Britain basically had control over the Arabian state of Palestine. There's a bunch of Arabians there. Before World War II and during World War II, you had this small but growing Jewish settlements going on here, scattered all around Palestine. Clearly, Clearly, this is starting to grow. Starting in roughly 1947, 
that really kicks into gear. There's this mass exodus over there. But in 39, Britain even said specifically and overtly, they're like, we want to make very clear that it's not part of our policy that Palestine should ever become a Jewish state. Britain is against that idea. And we're the ones controlling Palestine, so you don't have to sweat this. We've got Palestine until 1948. So we're not going to let it become a Jewish state. But most of the economic wealth in Palestine was coming from the Jewish communities. Because, as we've talked about before, Jewish communities tended not to interact with anybody else. They were their own bankers and things. So when you have economic failings during the Middle Ages amongst all the Christians who were lending to one another at ridiculous rates, the Jews who said, actually, God gave us laws about how we can't lend to one another at ridiculous rates and things. We can lend to you guys. We can't lend to one another, but we can lend to you guys. We're making money hand over fist because they weren't interacting with the very speculative economics of everybody else. So Britain's like, we don't want to kick the Jews out, because that's where the money is. And that's where we get money from Palestine. So we're not giving them the country, but we're not telling them to leave. But we are closing a lot of immigration for this. And the British troops begin, and the, American, uh, the, uh, the Arabian militant groups begin cracking down on Jewish settlers, kind of making life difficult for them, which incited Jewish militant groups to take up arms to fight against the British troops and the Arabian militant groups. So increasingly, you're getting fighting all over the place in Palestine. 1945, Truman says, you know what? Really, really, please let these people go home. It is, this is where they came from originally. 100,000 Jews who have survived the Holocaust want to resettle in Palestine. We need to let them. And Britain said, no. America said, yeah. Yeah, I really think they need to settle in Palestine. Britain said, no, we're not taking an influx of 100,000 people. America said, yeah, you really are. 1946, there's enough Jews in the area that Britain and the United Nations put together a plan to partition, to partition Palestine into Jewish and Arab zones. It does! Doesn't it? As long as they stay in their zones, everything's fine. Does that work good? Yeah. Britain's only caveat, they said, fine, we'll do it, but only if America agrees to police the region and defend it if there's any Arabian slash Jewish violence. If there's chafing between them, America promises in perpetuity to step in and be part of the solution. And Truman said, absolutely. Remember that the next time somebody says, why are we involved with, India, with Egypt, or with uh, Israel? You go, because... Because that was one of the caveats. That's what we agreed to back in 1948. It's like, yeah, we're doing this. So Arabian Palestinians, pardon me? Again, whether you like this or don't like this has a lot to do with your theology, doesn't it? Because the, 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 the Israelis look at Truman and go, we love you. So Arabian Palestinians, ironically, didn't like it. Like, wait, so you just gave them half of our country? This is our country. Why did the Jews say, no, it's our country? It came from there, but technically so did these Arabians. At least these last, you know, thousands of years of, of populations. Why did, they, why did the Jews seem to think that this is their country? How do you know God gave it to them? Scripture. Scripture says God gave it to Abraham and his descendants. And his descendants were, who's his, who's his son? 
Abraham's oldest? Ishmael, from whom the Arabians come, right? Of course, Ishmael wasn't entirely official, and he and his mom were sent away. So it was given to... Pardon me? Okay, you guys are all giving me slightly different answers, but yeah. Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, yeah. Uh, from whose, you know, Jacob's family and all that kind of stuff. So you go, yeah. So who is it? Is it the eldest son, or is it the eldest official legitimate son? Because it was given to Abraham as descendants, so whose is it? Actually, it was the faithful descendants. And now you're getting all theological, aren't you? But no matter what, you're coming at this and going, well, given my understanding of Scripture, because that flies in the UN, doesn't it? <laughs> so Arabian militias increasingly openly attacked Jewish settlements. So civil war breaks out in 1948. Several countries sent troops in to try to maintain order. Yes, it was partitioned in 47. But in 48, you get a civil war. But the Arabian economy collapses under the civil war, but not the Jewish economy, which are two completely separate economies, right? Which means that the Jews in Palestine declared themselves to be an independent state. And you're like, you guys, you're, you have no government. We've got a government and it's working. The day before the British protectorate gives out, Israel says, and now we're home. So immediately, Egypt, Syria, Transjordan, Iraq, Yemen, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, the Sudan, all send in troops. Like, we will tear down the Jewish state. There will be no Jewish-Palestinian state. After a year of fighting, the Jews still hold their ground, their borders are solidified, and 700,000 Arabs are deported from Jewish lands. Because everybody says, yay! Y'all, several of us said yay, and understandably said yay, when I said, ah... Israel became a country again. <laughs> May 11th, 1949, the United Nations officially recognizes Israel as its own independent state. So, 1947, is that when the Jews get their homeland? Well, yeah, the UN partitioned them to have their own zones. 1948, is that when Israel gets its own homeland? Yes, that's when they declared themselves to be Israel. 1949, is that when Israel gets their homeland? Yes, that's when the UN said, okay. So, you get three years there, knock yourself out, whichever birthday you want. But that's against the objections of Great Britain. Great Britain said, absolutely not. That's going to really annoy all of our Arabian and Egyptian holdings. We control all these Muslim people around there. If we say okay to that, we're going to annoy the Muslims that we want taxes from. So no, we think it's a bad idea. By the way, the World Council of Churches also said it was a bad idea. Very strongly against it, and still are very strongly against it. In 2009, the, the World Council of Churches declared the Israeli occupation of Palestinian land is a sin against God and humanity because it deprives the Palestinians of their basic human rights. Now, whether you find yourself going, yeah, cool, totally agree with the World Council of Churches, they're absolutely right. Or you find yourself going, oh, but it's their land, God gave it to them. It really has a lot to do with your theology, doesn't it? How important is it to try to understand how church history and world history intertwined. So with that quote, they're not talking about like Jewish settlements, they're not talking about a two-state solution, they're just saying the fact that they're there at all. Yeah. Since 1967, Israel has also occupied the Golan Heights, 
up here. So if you ever hear some of these terms, this is where they are. The Golan Heights up there that was from Syria, and the coastal Gaza Strip that used to be part of, of Egypt, and the West Bank of the Jordan over here, leading up to between the Jordan and Jerusalem, taking that from, from Jordan over here, which had been kind of the last bastion of Arabian Palestine. So, again, whether you cheer that and say, yay, they got the whole country back, or you decry that and say, that's horrible, has a lot more to do with what you think theologically than what you think sociopolitically, which I find interesting. So how should we as a church respond? How should we be thinking about them today? Should we be saying, yay, Israel? Should we be saying, bad Israel? Or should we say, uh, it's a conversation? If you ask me, I should say, it's a conversation. Because if you just say, yay, Israel, you go, yay, you took land that I didn't want other people to have. And you keep taking it. There are people who don't like that. If you say, no, no, it's the Palestinians, I go back and go, actually, they moved in after you got kicked out by Hadrian. So, no, technically it does belong to them. I think this is right. But all that requires conversation and caring about the people you're interacting with. 1948, same year that apartheid began in South Africa. You've heard the term apartheid before, haven't you? It's an Afrikaans word, quasi-Dutchly, meaning the state of being separate, literally aparthood. Apartheid. Yes. Anyway, so separation. This is the official institutional separation of whites and non-whites in South Africa. But it's not the first time that you've had racism in South Africa. So it's not like suddenly in 1948 they got racist. Like I was telling somebody the other day, it's like, you cannot say, well, what are the causes of, of the Civil War? Well, in 1860, no. You try to start with the cause of the Civil War and you skip the 1830s and 40s and 50s, you're doing bad history. You know, nothing just pops out of nowhere. First off, black tribes have been fighting one another for centuries, long before the Dutch and the British came, right? And, and not just fighting each other, but racistly fighting each other, saying, you, you, we are different races, you are bad. That's still going on in, that, in South Africa. Again, you've been hearing about South, South Africa in the news this week? Tweets. This week, cities like Pretoria are racked with violent race riots. All throughout South Africa, massive rioting throughout this week. Blacks rioting against blacks from other nations. As one militant group put it, Zimbabweans, Nigerians, Pakistanis, etc. are not our countrymen. Zimbabweans, Nigerians, Pakistanis, etc. bring nothing but destruction. They hijack our buildings. They sell drugs. They inject young South African ladies with drugs and sell them as prostitutes. How is that helping us? They've destroyed beloved Johannesburg, and now they're destroying Pretoria. We don't want these immigrants here, because they're all just a bunch of drug dealers and pimps. Right? Does that sound familiar? Uh, don't hear me justify the rationale of that, but do hear me say it galls me anytime I hear people going, the rest of the world thinks we're crazy. Really? Really? It's reported that roughly 100 Somalis are killed in South Africa a year by blacks who resent their immigration into their country. 
a lot of the violence this week, even though the, the verbiage has been about others, a lot of the violence has been against Somalis, Somali businesses and things. In, in, in saying we think that these foreign elements will damage our country, rioters have regularly attacked and destroyed Somali businesses, stolen money, etc., to show that South Africa is a place of law and order, and we don't want these rowdy foreign elements. Again, does, does that sound vaguely familiar? Do you run into this in our country? When I was down there in 95, the trucks would have an armed guard behind them to keep them from being hijacked. And we had to travel at different times during the day. That's 20 years ago. It's gotten a lot worse than that. But even in our country, to show that we're frustrated with what we see as people not following the law, we break into convenience stores and break into ATMs and set fire to innocent cars and things. Again, is that to say that the people who are protesting are necessarily good? No. But you can't say that you retain the moral high ground at that point. 1892, the Franchise and Ballot Act was passed, raising the requirements for being eligible to vote from owning 25, 25 pounds of property to owning 75 pounds of property. To which all of us go, okay, whatever. I guess. I mean, it's crippled enough. I don't know. Doesn't sound like it has anything on paper to do much with race. Did I say anything about race there? Except that the vast majority of the, Af the, of the black African property owners in South Africa own quite a bit less than 75 pounds of property. It was only the white South Africans that held 75 pounds or more in property. So suddenly, they were all completely disenfranchised. They couldn't vote because they didn't own 75 pounds of property. Which is why it's crucial to examine laws both in terms of how they're intended and in terms of how they're written. Because those are different, right? And if you obfuscate part of that, or if you confuse part of that, bad stuff happens. I'm sorry, I just can't help but read history and see today. I can't help but see it. The Glenn Gray Act of 1894 technically aggravated this by limiting the amount of property the tribal, i.e. black, South Africans could hold personally, pressuring them into living in the community lands. It says, what we're doing is trying to help tribes stay together. So we are pressuring tribes to own tribal lands. But we're giving them whole tribal lands where we go, this is yours. Your whole tribe could be together. We stop the racial violence between tribes. This is great. Of course, that also means that Individuals don't hold property, tribes hold property. So there's much less chance that an individual will now hold 75 pounds worth of personal property, right? The General Pass Regulations Act of 1905 designated different areas of the country for whites and non-whites, requiring non-whites to have special passes to travel from zone to zone. That's racist. But on top of that, it's even worse when you realize you only get the right to vote in your zone. Which means that if you're non-white, you don't get to vote in a white zone or in any kind of national elections. You only get to vote in your stuff. The Native Land Act of 1913, the Natives in Urban Areas Act Bill of 1918, created reserves outside of cities and ghettos for blacks within cities. The enforcement law is pretty much economic. You're just like, we're giving you incentives to do this, We'll give incentives for whites to stay where they are. We'll give incentives for blacks. We will charge 
special massive tax hikes for any white, pardon me, white businesses that build or help uh, black homes to stay in the cities. So you've got laborers, and the common practice was you'll put your laborers up in kind of like, think of it like a personage. You'll put your, your laborers up in different places so that they will have a place to live while they labor for you. By the way, if you're a white business and you're doing that for blacks who should be in their own zones, massive, massive tax hikes. So there's all sorts of economic incentives and disincentives for that. But in 1948, no, we're not even going to play this game anymore. Just flat out racist. Let's just, let's, let's not pretend that we're trying to help. Let's not pretend that this is all just about how much property you own. No, we're going to say it's straight up about race. World War II, seeing massive influxes of immigrants from all over Africa, filling the country with new, undereducated black populations from everywhere. Communism, if you will recall, is on the rise among poor populations around the globe, especially Asia and Africa. So there's a lot of communist uprisings going on all over the place in the continent of Africa. And the communists have already gone on record as saying, we are consciously trying to overthrow capitalism and democracy, right? So, you have understandable fears that sudden, uncontrolled influxes of immigrants from areas that are already racked with violence and terrorism, they're going to create dangerous domestic situations at home. Does that sound familiar at all? So as a result, because we have a completely justifiable concern, because we don't know, are, are we bringing communists in? Are we bringing militants in? I don't know. So we're going to create new programs to control the black population of the nation. That was the rationale, at least, that's used. How important is it to stop and say, wait, are we being reasonable or are we acting out of fear? Are we opening doors for things? They argued they never had problems with white South Africans. And every time we give... Every time we give Paul a cookie, he's fine. And every time we beat Floyd over here with a stick, he gets angry. Clearly, white South Africans are fine, and black South Africans are problematic. But it's interesting, because they're like, it's all these new black populations coming in that are the problem, which is ironically what the black South Africans are writing about today. Again, the irony of history. Wait. This, this, this ridiculousness is the exact ridiculousness that brought apartheid in back in 48. Learn, learn history. Oh, all right. 48. Newly elected prime minister in this national party brings in sociopolitical systems based specifically on race. The population are officially divided into four groups. White, black, Indian, and colored. Colored being everything else. So any, you know, cross, race, misbreed, anything like that. White, black, Indian, and other. Everyone gets issued identity cards clearly indicating which group you are. The Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act of 1949 makes it illegal to marry across racial lines. We're keeping all the races together. The Immorality Act of 1950 forbade sexual intercourse between Europeans and anyone not European, which tacitly meant it's even illegal to date somebody across racial lines because we don't know if you're messing around with them. The Group Areas Act of 1950 formally required different races to live in separate physical areas. Over the course of apartheid's rule, 3.5 million non-white South Africans were forcefully removed from their homes and required to move into segregated neighborhoods or reserves, which is particularly complicated if you are 
in a mixed race family already. So if Gary is black, but Donna is Indian, you no longer can live together. By the way, your children would be colored, which means they can't live with either of you. But it works better for everybody because if you just remove the chafing point, there is no more hatred, right? If you just get rid of the thing that's pointing you and going, this is nagging you and this is what you're fighting about, everything's going to be okay. The Reservation of Separate Amenities Act of 1953 created the right for separate municipal areas for the exclusive use of different races. This is for white people only. That is for black people only. This is for colored people only. Now that might sound very similar to the, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision we talked about from 1896. Remember that in the United States? So you might say they go, well, that's the same thing we're doing over here. In point of practice, it's very similar. But I would contend there is a crucial, crucial difference between the Plessy versus Ferguson decision and this. Plessy versus Ferguson said, actually, there's nothing constitutional or unconstitutional about providing equal amenities for different races. There's nothing in the Constitution that tells us that it's wrong for you as a municipality to provide a park for black people and a park for white people. There's a difference between saying that and this that says there are going to be specific areas where only white people get to go and you don't. There's a difference between saying uh, there's nothing under the rule of law that is preventing that from happening on a municipal level and from a governmental federal level saying that's it. You guys are completely segregated away. Same year. The Bantu Education Act created a separate school system for blacks, focused solely on teaching them how to be unskilled laborers. You don't need to learn stuff. In fact, Minister of Native Affairs Henrik Venevoort argued that this is an act of kindness. Isn't it an act of kindness? He said, explaining the average Bantu, he said, there's no place for him in the European community above the level of certain forms of labor. Until now, he's been subject to a school system which misled him by showing him green pastures of European society which he's not able to graze. What's the use of teaching the Bantu child mathematics when it cannot use it in practice? That is quite absurd. Education must train people in accordance with their opportunities in life according to the sphere in which they live. Don't you agree? I mean, isn't that, if you've created a society like this under, under apartheid, where a Bantu child would never be able to be more than a laborer. Isn't this the most conscientious thing that you can do at that point for the Bantu child? Think about how you should answer that question. Once you've created a system like apartheid, isn't this the best choice that you can do at that point? Yeah. Yeah, okay, we talked about this on, on, on Friday night. Once David actually does endanger Ahimelech and lie to a priest and eat bread that it wasn't for him. And once he's done all that stuff because he's all clever and realizes that Doeg is going to rat him out to Saul and realize that Ahimelech is probably going to have some massive troubles for that. What's his best solution? What, what, what should he do at that point? He should never have done that in the first place. He should never have endangered somebody else. He should never have lied to a priest. He should never have broken the rules in the first place. Once you get in the middle of Hamlet, well, what are Claudius's choices? Should have never killed Hamlet's father in the first place before the play even started. By 1990, the system itself was breaking down. It didn't work. It's poorly designed. It, it, it was expensive. And international pressure started forcing the South Africans to dismantle it. 
But what lessons can we learn today from not just about apartheid, but how apartheid started? How could they even justify holding on to that for 42 years? What can we learn as a church, if not as a country? What philosophies gave rise to it in the first place? What philosophies made people sit there and go, well, I guess it's the way it is? White and black for 42 years. Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. First of all, there's, there's big differences between what somebody believes, you know, what they do, um, and what they were born into and how So, so making decisions based on lifestyle choices versus making decisions based on genetic inheritance. There is a difference between that and it's worth discussing. Yeah. Okay, what else? The idea that some people are inherently worth more than other people. I'm sorry, can the church actually learn anything about that? that some people, you should treat differently because they're just not worth quite the investment that other people are. <coughs> Anything else? Once you get to a certain point, isn't it just a kindness to leave people where they are in squalor? Once you get to a certain point, just, just let it go. Can the church learn anything about that mindset? <coughs> Y'all very quiet, so maybe I'll just stop. But it is, the problem here that I'm trying to get at, though, isn't apartheid. The problem here I'm trying to get at isn't South Africa. The problem is that there's human structures within us as human beings that help us to justify treating other human beings like this for a generation and a half. In fact, after a generation, it gets easier and easier because you go, well, this is the way my granddad did it. At some point, someone needs to stand up and say, no, Same year, Korea is divided between north and south. Let's pick it up that place next time. Pray with me. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you because your wisdom is always wise. And our wisdom is always flawed. I thank you because you keep showing us truth. Keep reminding us of truth. And we keep trying to do it wrong, and we keep feeling so justified in doing it wrong. We keep thinking that if we can just control the boundaries, we can control the zones, we can control the flags, then everything will be okay. And amazingly, it doesn't tend to be. Help us, Lord, to be less concerned about that. Not unconcerned, less concerned about that, I pray, and more concerned about people. In Jesus' name, amen.